The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Fast Money does start right now. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Jeff Mills, Pete Najarian, Bono and Eisen, and Mike Coe. Tonight on Fast, a major reversal hitting market today as signs point to some speed bumps in this road to reopening. The chartmaster breaks down what he sees on the horizon. Plus, slacking off why the work-from-home darling may not be able to cut it against a much larger competitor. And later on Options Action, the Fed adding a new layer to its bank stress test, how the sector will hold up against the backdrop of the coronavirus. But we start off tonight with Apple dropping sharply from all-time highs after news it was reclosing stores in areas seeing an uptick in COVID cases. This comes at the end of a week when analysts were becoming increasingly bullish on this stock. There was RBC upping its price target to 390 bucks, saying the company is in a league of its own when it comes to share buybacks. Citigroup came out with a then-street high price target of $400 on potential for Apple's yet-to-be-released 5G iPhone and its services business. And today, a new street high from Jeffries, who thinks the stock can go another 15 percent higher from here. So what do we make of this bullishness, especially as there are still uncertainties about this U.S. economy? Pete Najarian, what do you say? Well, I can understand the bullishness, Mel, just because of the fact that there are so many different verticals that Apple actually can tap into. So we're talking about services. We talk about wearables all the time. Even the Mac, which is almost a forgotten uh, continues to be something that's very strong. So there's so many different verticals that they've got. But when you start closing down stores, obviously there's going to have some effects. And I think people are going to react just like they did today. But I think in the longer term, we're still looking at a stock that because of the growth, and it's not just the phone like it once was, even I think when we get around to the 5G, I think it's going to be more than just the phone. I think it's going to be some of the other categories, the App Store included. I think there's a lot of reasons to like Apple here. And I think it is. I think it's very legitimately a $400 stock in in the six to 12 month range. Is there any concern uh, about selling a, a north of $1,000 iPhone, 5G iPhone later in this year, um, as we are seeing Beijing, for instance, deal with its own reclosures at Bonwin? I mean, I, I don't, it's primarily a hardware company. If they can't sell those $1,000 phones, I don't know what happens <laughs> to this story. A fair point, although I'd be less worried about Apple than I would about another company um, with much higher capex. Um, you know, Caterpillar, names, names like that, where it's like a much more of a durable goods purchase. I think Apple, in addition to the, the several verticals that were mentioned, I mean, I think it's more of like a trend. Um, you know, it's got a very sticky customer base, inelasticity of demand. And I, and I really think the phone is more seen as a necessity now um, in terms of all the capabilities as opposed to a durable good. So I do see some differentiation there. Defensive, it sounds like this thing is. I mean, everybody's going to, it's almost like a consumer staple, Jeff Mills. But what do you think of the valuation here? Yeah, it's funny you guys bring that up because I wanted to mention the valuation. And number one, I agree with what Pete's saying. I've said it before, but it's worth repeating. You do have the wearables, you do have the services. They are going to be growth engines, and they're going to have to be because of the level of the valuation. But even given where Apple's trading right now, I think it's actually a stock that could do pretty well even if the market hits a rough patch. You know, I've had my reservations about this market. I haven't been quiet about that. 
But even where it's trading right now, given its cash position, its strong balance sheet, its ability to continue to buy back stock, and it's going to continue to do that in the coming years, I think it does have a little bit of a defensive posture to it right now. You know, the market was uh, down 30 percent at the low year to date, and Apple was only down 23 percent. So we've seen that bear out in actual trading. And I do think that that could continue. The one thing I would look at is, you know, maybe China, if you have... Uh, trade relations deteriorate there a little bit. If you do have virus cases uh, spike to the extent that you're worried about the economy, that, that's a potential problem. But I think just playing it on the momentum on the breakout and some of those fundamentals I mentioned, uh, I still like it here. Mike, your thoughts? Yeah, so this is an interesting one. I actually have a small bearish position in Apple here, although I think people probably know that I began to get a little bit skeptical right after the stock started climbing out of the, those crisis lows that we saw and started to approach the all-time highs that we saw in February that was about 327. That was about the price that I began to think, you know, maybe we're fully priced in this thing here. I will say, you know, with respect to the iPhone, that is a meaningful and important part of their revenues and their income, and it will be supported by 5G. Let's face facts. People who carry iPhones, and actually I'm one of them, everybody in my family is, When they go 5G, we're all going to replace them. And what are we going to replace them with? We're going to replace them with Apple phones. The other thing is that the Mac, as Pete was just talking about, they have, I mean, it's a small slice of the market, but it's a growing slice of the market. We've seen just, you know, marginal increases there, but it's a good margin business. So I think in that sense, it's it's a very safe uh, company. And you're thinking about the financials. But at 25 times forward earnings, I, I do think that it is fairly fully priced. And so my inclination would be if you've been fortunate enough to take some uh, big profits here and you didn't sell down at those crisis lows that you might think about taking some profits. All right. So a couple maybe questions about valuation. Pete, I have a question about services. I, I, your favorite Apple analyst on the street is Katie Huberty, right? <laughs> Katie Huberty. KB, Katie <laughs> yes. Huberty. And she loves the services revenue, as do you, right? Yes. And, yes. and so my question is, what if regulators here in the United States or in the EU Uh, start saying to Apple, hey, you know what, take a look at how you deal with your app store and what you force developers to do and what you charge them, 15 to 30 percent of subscriptions, because you know what, Microsoft's president was complaining about that at an event today. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. Obviously, that would be a hit, Mel. Um, I I think that would be something that that certainly would be concerning, although I just wonder how much there is to this whole thing in in terms of are they going to be able to go after Apple? Because I've heard both sides of the story throughout the day on CNBC and a lot of great coverage of this this sort of a topic of where does Apple go from now? Are they the big bad guy? Well, they are the big bad guy because they are so big. They own the space. And because of that, I still feel very, very comfortable about the services. I'd get a little less comfortable if they did start to regulate in some way, shape, or form. But the reality is it was services. It still is services. But I'm still looking to wearables where they have incredible growth. That has caught up to or at least catching up to the services in a very, very quick way. It hasn't gotten there quite yet, but getting very, very growth. The growth there is incredible and the margins melt. So the combination from the wearables, I think, is the place where I'm focusing even more now than it was years ago at the services. Now it's wearables. Big tech going after big tech, though, Bono. And I mean, it was the Microsoft comments today that really caught my eye when when Brad Smith said this is worse than when we were found guilty of anti-competitive practices way back when 1980s or whenever that was. It was this is worse. This is a worse situation. Um, You know, I I still think it's kind of TBD. Um, Listen, we're in an election year. There's 
a ton of headlines kind of swirling right now. Uh, we've seen similar instances with Facebook um, and some of the other larger players. So clearly it's something to, to keep on the, the top of mind. However, I, I think before there's a little bit more meat on the bone, we'd be a little bit, um, a little bit early in, in making a decision one way or the other. All with right. regards to that. Fair point. Check out shares of Disney. Meantime, falling today as Wells Fargo published a bearish note saying it's a long road ahead for park goers and that cruises are unlikely anytime soon. Um, Jeff, in the past, you have loved Disney. And of course, this fell. Uh, Disney did uh, when we got the headline about Apple closing some of its stores because there's a fear that there's going to be some some backtracking when it comes to some of these openings. Yeah, it, it's a story that long term I still like very much. But obviously, in the near term, you have a business model that's going to be challenged. You have, you know, the parks, you have studios, the content creation, all the things that Disney's known for. Uh, it's going to be under some pressure. You know, when we last talked about the stock in early May, we were still at the beginning of the momentum in the reopening trade and the virus count going down. You had parks opening uh, in certain international markets. So I felt like there was a catch-up trade between Disney and the broad market. And over the next three or four weeks, you saw Disney make up ground to the tune of maybe 6 or 7% versus the broad market. Now I think we're in a little bit of a different situation with Disney. You've actually had the stock turned away precisely at the downward sloping 200-day moving average. Now you have cases rising in parts of the U.S., rising in other parts of the world. So I get a little bit concerned that some of the momentum of that catch-up trade is now behind us, especially at the valuation where it is now. I mean, if you look at the price you know, in the mid-115, uh, you know, 116, as an example, versus forward earnings, and the valuation looks a little bit ridiculous here. Even the Wells Fargo note that came out recently, it's talking about looking to 2022 where earnings would be a little bit more normalized. They're still talking about uh, around 23 times at a price of, of 118. So that's right around where we're trading now. So I still like the company long term. If I'm, if I'm an investor and I already hold the name, I'd continue to hold it. But if I'm looking to buy it, I'd be much more excited sub 110, closer to 100. Mike? Yeah, this is an interesting situation because, you know, this is a company that's been caught squarely in the crosshairs of this crisis, this health crisis. They have a significant portion of their revenues that are obviously coming from parks, as everybody was talking about, and other things like the cruise lines. But even things like theatrical release delays and things like that, that affects their studio business as well. I would say the one bright spot clearly is Disney+, Plus, and that is a, is a bright spot to be sure. But the size and scope of their other business segments is such that it is really hard for me to comprehend. This is actually valued approximately where it was in April of 2019. That was when the stock got that big pop that we saw on sort of the Disney Plus kind of thing. Now we're in a different sort of a place. And I'd be very reluctant, I think, to dip my toe in the water and buy the stock here. All right. Well, the market's sharp swings probably have some of you wondering what's coming next. So we're getting chart master Carter Worth to break down the key levels he is watching for the week ahead. Carter. Sure. Well, I mean, in a way, the market is sort of just in no man's land here. And so in that sense, you can make the case for the bull for the bear. But uh, let's look at a few charts and figure it out. Three in total. So the first, just simply, you can see on your screen, it, it highlights the high for the year, the low for the year, and then the midpoint. And what we know is that equities peaked on that uh, Tuesday, February 19th. They plunged, it bottomed on that Monday, March 23rd, and then this impressive gain, 47%. And now the churn, the stall. The midpoint is that 2800 level, which you can see sort of highlighted there. So now the second chart. Uh, it's the same chart, but I've also included the trend line, in effect, since 
of the March 23rd low. And what we know is, of course, that we've broken that trend line and we're churning, we're stalling. We broke, we tried to get back to it, but we're still under it. And ultimately, I think, I think this is, whether you're bullish or bearish, it's good because if you're bullish, it's uh, the pause that refreshes. If you're bearish, you think the churn is the beginning of something worse. To that end, uh, the third chart, uh, if and as this is the beginning of something worse, that's my hunch, uh, and we do uh, give back more than we have given back, a reference point would be the midpoint. And so you can see here on this chart, the high for the year is annotated, the low, the midpoint. You see we've uh, broken trend, and now where to? I think we get to 2,800. At that point, uh, there'll be some real jockeying for position. But we know that VIX is elevated, and there are still a lot of issues with all the things that people are hoping on, banks, industrials, and so forth. Hmm. Carter, thanks. We'll see you next uh, next show, Options Action. And, and Jeff, you also were looking at the charts. You're noticing a relationship between airlines and the broader markets. Yeah, I mean, look, I've had my reservations about the market in general from a fundamental perspective, and I think you know, we're, we're in the beginning periods of healing, but I think the market's priced in a lot more than that. So I'm not exactly sure what's going to be the catalyst from here to something more substantial in the market. And I was just looking at the correlation. I talked about this last week, but early in the trading session, actually the correlation between cruise lines, airlines, casinos, uh, we were up, but you had some red on the screen there. And even within airlines, you had some up and some down. So it was interesting. Typically in these really strong days in the market, you're seeing green across the board in that reopening trade. You did not see that early in the trading session today. And although I didn't necessarily know it at the time, it was perhaps a foreshadowing of what was to come for the rest of the day. So that's interesting. And then Carter also mentioned the VIX. Um, this is also something I'm keeping my eye on. But usually, just because of the construct of the VIX, you have a negative correlation between the S&P 500 and the VIX. S&P 500 is up, VIX down, and vice versa. You've actually started to see some days where the S&P 500 is up and the VIX is also up, where the S&P is down and the VIX is down. Today was one of those days. Um, if you look back over the last number of years, I think in the last three years, you've only had four occurrences where that 20-day rolling correlation between the VIX and the S&P 500 turns positive. Um, you know, one day doesn't make a trend, but when you see that 20-day correlation turn positive, it's actually been problematic for the market in, in the coming weeks. It was early 2018, late 2018, mid 2019, and then early this year. Um, and just intuition speaks to as the market continues to rise, if the VIX is also rising, the mm -hmm. options market might be sniffing something out. So we're not quite there yet on that 20-day correlation number, but we are hooking higher and the correlation's becoming less negative. So pay attention to that because it's been a good signal over the past couple of years. Funny you should bring this up, Jeff, because we happen to be in the company of three options traders tonight on Fast Money. So, Pete, I'm gonna I'm gonna toss it over to you and see if you if you notice this and and also sort of uh, does it raise your eyebrows? Well, I've noticed it. It doesn't really bother me as much raising my eyebrows actually because of the fact, Mel. When we look at the intraday movement that we've been seeing, and I always just go back to the idea that it's not a fear index. It's an index that's telling us what are the expected moves. So. You call it just north of a 32, you're talking about a 2% move on the S&P every single day. Well, we get something close to that if you look at the VIX from the perspective of, or the, the markets from the perspective of the lows to the highs and all that movement in between. I think it's warranted to be here right now. And we have had days where we've actually seen the markets go up with the volatility index going up. But for me, that makes sense because we are seeing movement like we have never seen before in the marketplace when we see some of these swings. So it doesn't bother me. I've noticed it, obviously, and I'm using the VIX. When it's high, I'm using it to buy stocks and sell calls. 
And on the opposite side of it, when it gets cheaper and it gets closer to 30 or below, I'm then once again adding more option positions than I am stocks. Professor Coe, what say you? Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of with Pete here. One of the things that's important to remember about the VIX also is that options prices are not necessarily trying to forecast the direction of the market as how much it's going to move. And you can suddenly incorporate new potential events or catalysts that essentially require the premium or the insurance cost for the market to rise. So do we have some things that are taking place over the course of the next 30 days that would justify a higher VIX level or a higher implied volatility price of options, even if we weren't seeing the kind of relatively violent swings from a historical context that we have been seeing? And the answer, of course, to that is yes, we've got things like bank stress tests and things like that. So when you have that situation, that's partially, I think, what the options market is looking forward to. All right, got to head to break here. Coming up, a big bearish call on Slack, taking the wind out of its sails today. What's next for this one-time work-from-home darling? And we've got a special edition of Fast at the top of the hour. We will count down the five biggest stories of the week and how they impacted your money. You won't want to miss that. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got a developing story on Robinhood, the brokerage platform, implementing some policy changes following the death of a 20-year-old user. Let's get to Kate Rooney for the very latest. Kate. Hi, Melissa. Robinhood updating its platform in the wake of a customer suicide last week. In a blog post this afternoon, the co-CEOs announcing three updates. First, eligibility. They're considering additional criteria and education for customers seeking level three options trading. Second, user interface, the rolling out improvements and alerts, as well as emails about option spreads and the way that buying power is displayed. Third, more educational resources and content related to options trading. The CEO is saying in a statement they were devastated by Alex Kern's death. They say it's, quote, not lost on us that the company and services have become synonymous with retail investing and that this has led to millions of new investors making their first investments through Robinhood. 20-year-old Alex Kearns died by suicide last week, and in a note to his parents seen by CNBC, he blamed Robin Hood for allowing him to take on too much risk. Melissa. Kate, thank you. Kate Rooney. Um, It's great that the retail trader is in, Pete, but education is so important. Right. That's exactly right. I mean, it's incredible. It's sad beyond words. I, I can't even describe it. And when, I, and when I first read about this, but I think the reality is it's all about education. And I know Mike and all the rest of the option guys would agree with me. You have to understand the risks. You have to understand every trade that you're putting on. And unfortunately, too many go into this world just jumping right in. This is a very, very difficult, complex area, the derivatives markets. You've got to have a full understanding and you've got to be educated. All right, let's move on here. Goldman Sachs sending a stern message on Slack today. The firm downgrading the stock to a sell, saying competition from Microsoft Teams is setting up for an enduring battle. Analysts also setting a $30 price target, implying 10% downside from here. Shares of Slack down 3%, but up a massive 114% since March lows, as investors bet on the work from home trend. Um, Bonowin, where do you stand on Slack? Uh, it's been a darling of the uh, work from home protocol for sure. For sure. Um, 
But I think uh, I'd like to differentiate between the target markets of Slack and Microsoft Teams. Um, as Mike has alluded to several times, listen, Microsoft is a behemoth, top in class in what they do. Uh, anytime you know, you're kind of staring down the sights of Microsoft, uh, it, it is something to, to take into consideration. However, I would say that Slack is more associated with startup, VC, smaller businesses, and as they mentioned in the, uh, in the note, some of the travel and, and leisure businesses. I think Microsoft is associated with much larger business enterprises, uh, enterprise software, things of that nature. So I do think there's um, a large enough market, market for both to be playing in. But as we've mentioned several times, now that stocks are starting to, to decouple from the overall market and you're seeing a bit more differentiation between names, I would rotate into a name like Microsoft. I mean, it's, it's less of a speculative play. Um, Clearly, if you own Slack, I, I wouldn't rush out to sell it. But if I'm adding positions now, I'm being extremely picky and choosy. And clearly, I think most of the work from home is, is behind us as opposed to the amount of time uh, ahead of us. It is precisely that exposure to the smaller businesses, right, that the analyst Heather Bellini at Goldman Sachs had pointed out as, as a risk here. I mean, those are the businesses that might churn higher, um, you know, churn faster off the platform because we're in this uh, phase of the economy where things are kind of tough here, Jeff. Um, and, and Microsoft has the ability to package up, uh, package up teams into its bundles. That's very powerful. Yeah, I would agree. And if, you, if you look at the note, I think 25% of Slack's revenue is associated with companies of less than 100 people. So I understand what Bono is saying. I agree that they can play in a, in a little bit of a different space. But you have companies like Zoom and Slack where, you know, during this work from home, they've really benefited, not only from a stock price perspective, but from a business perspective. But it's also made that space look a lot more attractive to some of the really big incumbents that can come in and take market share and potentially reduce the growth rate that they're going to need to ultimately justify the valuations like a Slack. So I would rather own a Microsoft you know, at 10 times sales versus a Slack at 20 times sales. And I think for me, it's, it's just as simple as that. All right. Um, Mike, quickly. Yeah, I mean, we're users of Slack, but I've also used Teams, and its integration is pretty, pretty seamless, especially when you consider that they have the same functionality that Zoom also offers, and we're using a lot of Microsoft Office suite products already. So I've said it before that I'm a bit, you know, bigger fan of Microsoft than I am of Slack, even though I am a Slack user, and I continue to feel that way. And Pete, I know from day one you're questioning Slack and its ability to beat Teams. Yeah, and, and the fact, and, and Microsoft, their teams grew 70% in April. It says everything. They're a monster. They want to kill Slack, and I think they're going to. All right, coming up, we're getting ready for options action. Why this consumer staple stock is setting up for a big pop. But first, you've got your final trades. Fast Money is back in two. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. 
final trade. Let's go around the horn. Jeff Mills. So I was a seller of IBB a couple of weeks ago as it struggled to break above its old 2015 highs. Now it looks like it's ready to make that break, so I play the momentum IBB. Pete Najarian. I'm going to go with Chewy. I love those pets online. Bono and Eisen. I'm going to reiterate, I still like buying upside calls in GLD. We're seeing volatility on both sides of the market. Mike Coe. Avoid the temptation to get long dividends and financials on on options action. In a couple minutes, we're going to tell you why. Now that is a tease. Mike's going to stick around. Coming up, by the way, we've got a special Fast 5 edition of Fast Money coming up at the top of the hour, 6 p.m. But don't go anywhere. Options action is up next. everybody, and a special hello to all you Mad Money fans. I'm Melissa Lee. Jim is off today, but you are in luck. We've got a special edition of Fast Money lined up for you. We're calling it the Fast Five. We're hitting the five hottest stories that impacted your money this week. With us tonight, Guy Dami, Tim Seymour, and Dan Nathan. So let's get right to it. We begin with the failure to relaunch. Apple out with a bombshell today announcing it will reclose Apple stores in Florida, Arizona, and the Carolinas. And this comes as coronavirus cases spike in those areas, as well as in Texas and California. Some areas of the country reporting record single-day increases. Let's kick things off with Meg Terrell and the alarming new numbers. Meg. Hey, Melissa, we're seeing a couple days worth of data now with these record increases in daily new cases. If you look at the United States in total, now the seven-day average of new cases is starting to tick higher again, meaning those trends that we're seeing through the South and the West of increasing cases are starting to overcome the positive trends coming down in the Northeast. As of yesterday, 27,000 new cases were reported across the United States. Now, if you look at some of those individual cases, we've just been getting the new case counts for today for uh, states like Arizona, now up to an an additional 3,200 cases reported today. California reporting 4,300 additional cases today, although some of that could be due to some testing backlog coming out of L.A. County. We saw in the numbers yesterday. Uh, Florida also reporting record high cases today, 3,800. South Carolina, another one of those uh, states reporting uh, record highs. Now, in terms of the hotspots in the country, the areas with the fastest case doubling times, it is those states. Phoenix, really in a bad spot, seeing their cases double every 12 days. We're also seeing similar trends in Tampa, Orlando, San Antonio, in Austin, whereas those areas in the Northeast are seeing the fastest slowdowns. Now, Mel, you mentioned those um, Apple store reclosures uh, in 11 different areas, and I was interested to see where those were and how they mapped against the trends that we were seeing across the country. So you can see the counties here, uh, Arizona, Apple closed all six of its stores across that state, but it was pretty discerning in other states, only closing two stores in Florida, not including ones in Tampa and Orlando, which are seeing that fastest case growth. North Carolina only closing uh, two stores in Charlotte, but leaving the rest of the state open. I dug into those numbers, and while all of those counties are seeing doublings and triplings of cases in the last two weeks, where Apple closed stores are where there were more cases per the population level. So they really are being pretty discerning there within those states. Mel? All good information. Thanks so much, Meg Terrell. The other point to make about Apple is 11 stores out of what is the what is the base here? There are many, many stores across the U.S., so 11 is just a small sampling here. But here we ask this question uh, because a rally has been built on the reopening trade. And what if we take a look at this reclosing 
of America. And will that sort of dash this rally that has been built on all of these hopes, Guy, that things are going to open up without a hitch? Yeah, that's one of the pillars of this rally, no question, this, this uh, reopening portion, which, you know, I've been skeptical of, not because I'm not optimistic, it's because I'm just sort of trying to follow the science and what people say. This virus doesn't care that it's getting nice out or that people want to go to the beach or that you want to have a couple beers with your friends. The virus could care less. It's not, it's, it doesn't seem to be going away in the warm weather. As a matter of fact, it seems to be getting worse in some of those states. So if you're building your hopes on a seamless uh, reopen, I think that's the wrong thing. The other leg of this, obviously, has been central bank intervention, which is probably the stronger of the two legs. And that seems to be what's bolstering things. But again, you know, I'm not trying to be dour here. I'm just trying to be realistic and, and, and be honest. I don't think this reopening is going to go nearly as smoothly as the market has seemed to suggest, at least until recently. Yeah. Dan? <laughs> Yeah, so I, listen, Mel, it was a pretty clear um, example of buying the rumors, selling the news a little bit. The, the market has kind of caught um, a little bit of resistance over the last week and a half or so. Um, you know, I think the Apple news is really interesting because, listen, I don't think that there is much demand um, by the mass by the masses here in America to have mass lockdowns again. And if you think back to March when we started having these lockdowns, it really started in the private sector. We saw the NBA shut down. We saw a lot of businesses like Apple start to close their stores and just try to be a bit careful. Because remember, it's not just their employees, it's their consumers. They need to create an atmosphere where people actually want to go shop. So at the end of the day, um, you know, I think that the private sector is likely to lead. We're going to have spotty, spotty uh, reopenings over the course of the summer. And I think investors are just going to have to kind of get used to that a little bit. I think that's sort of the point here that we're trying to make, and, and that is, <clears throat> You know, states and, and the United States as a whole may not want to do some more lockdowns, but it's the private sector. And so if stores close and they decide on their own to close, that is the economic impact. And isn't that what we really care about? I mean, that is going to be the impact to earnings. That is going to be the hit to the economy if they do not reopen as planned, Tim, regardless of what states are doing. But. But I, I think Apple has a, a, a social responsibility, or at least they feel they have a social responsibility, and I think they're deemed to be uh, one. And remember, it's very interesting because if you think about uh, when Apple was reopening stores in China, that was a glass half full moment. Um, and, and the fact that they are closing uh, on what, where they've already opened up, but that, you know, ultimately we are, look, as a country, we're moving to a reopening uh, phase, and, it, and it's obviously running into uh, you know, some headwinds. But, but the reality is it's just interesting to me that it's now a glass half empty. And, and Apple, uh, when they started closing stores in China, so when we really started to understand the impact and what it meant and what it meant for uh, their China business, it was a very big deal for the market. Um, is this a very big deal today? Uh, look, and as it relates to the health related cycles here. Uh, I'm not sure that a lot of the places where we're seeing, uh, you know, strong case or case rebounds are cases, uh, places that we ultimately had ever really gotten the right measure on what the impact of the virus had been. We're, we're, we're now hearing that places that are a little either more remote or certain parts of the country uh, are, are doing poorly. And that's, to me, I think part of that still that first wave. It just depends on how we want to measure this. And I think the data is 
very inconsistent. So um, this is not good news. And, and I think it, it sending the week out on this message for Apple, which hit all time highs this week, is a very important thing for the market to reflect on this weekend. Yeah. You know, Guy, when you're talking about the virus, the virus doesn't care if you want to go outside. The virus doesn't care if the weather is nice. That reminds me when people talk about the markets as Mr. Market. Mr. Virus doesn't care. Right. It's an entity in and of itself. It decides what it wants to do. Right. So Mr. Market guy is telling us Mr. Market does not care if there are these fits and starts. Mr. Market wants to go does higher. Guy, Mr. Market guy like is, that term, Mr. Market. I, I don't know. It kind of reminds I, me of Mr. I, Metz in this context when I, I take a look at I YouTube. Like... But but that's an aside. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Market doesn't care that Thank Mr. You. Virus doesn't care because Mr. Market wants to go higher. It wants to rise in hope. Markets always want to go higher, no question. And obviously, I understand that for the majority of the people, if not everybody watching, they actually have a vested interest. They want the markets to go higher as well. I get all of those things. You know, I just, you know, I, I left my pom-poms at home uh, 13 years ago. It's, it's, you know, and I'm not suggesting you're saying that, but our job, I've never viewed our job as to be a cheerleader for this market, you know, be dogmatic either way. We just try to tell it like it is. And what I'm telling you is, you know, earnings are going to be affected. Absolutely. The market's looking past that. In this environment, the market is trading at a ridiculous multiple, maybe justified given the fact that we have this reckless central bank Federal Reserve. But with that said, you know, again, this reopening is not going nearly as well as I think people had hoped or people expected. And I think we're seeing that now. And, you know, hopefully I'm wrong. But, you know, although the administration seems to think there's a magic vaccine coming over the next few months, you know, the science suggests, however many years of people uh, developing vaccines suggest, it doesn't happen that quickly. Yeah, you know, just so you know, Guy, if you were a cheerleader, it would really just have to be for like a funeral parlor or a morgue or something like that. And I'd probably be your teammate on that one. We're <laughs> not uh, the cheeriest people when it comes to this stuff right here. You know, it's what interesting. You use the term science. Wow. Well, he just said he's not a market cheerleader. Hey, <laughs> here's the thing, right? You use the term science a lot, and I think it's really interesting when we think about it as we're heading into the summer and people want to be out, and you talked about what the virus is going to do and where it's spreading. There's some simple things as we wait for therapies, as we wait for vaccines, as we are hopeful for all of that to come sooner than later. There seems to be pretty clear science that wearing a mask helps the spread of this disease. And, you know, for some reason, like everything in this country, it's become rather political. And so I think it's really interesting where if you look at the red blue map and you see where this thing's spreading and you see what the prognosis is or, or just the inclination is for people to wear masks, you see that it's spreading there. And I just think that that's a really interesting thing to keep well, an eye on, because I think we're he headed into a very political season here. And it seems that this is this is like really ground zero for that uh, for that environment. I think that's a really good point. And it reminds me of the note from our friend uh, Marco Kalanovich of JP Morgan when he wrote in a note that one of the biggest risks to the market yeah. is this politicization of the reopening. And part of that politicization of the reopening is this politicization of mask and mask wearing. And if mask wearing is, is the route to limiting this spread, then as we go into this political season, we could see that spread increase because of all this, uh, you know, seeing this as a red or, or blue kind of stance, Tim. 
Well, yeah, I mean, and, and uh, God bless Dan. I think I know what color his pom-poms are. But, uh, you know, I, I do think that there's a dynamic here, uh, which unfortunately this, this disease has become uh, a political football at times. And, and, and I do think also, you know, on a week when, when uh, uh, we heard from Mr. Powell, um, you know, the Fed has been thrown into this political season as well, even though we all, you know, would like to believe that that's not what happens. Um, so uh, I, I just think that, that, that the reality of the virus and what it's meant for markets is uh, it's been all about assessing the, the length of time and, and the amount of time that we're going to have to push back on, on earnings and assessments. And are we giving companies one year or two years on earnings multiples uh, and, and a, essentially a mulligan? Um, and I think that's that's really what it comes down to. The, the disease is all about a vaccine uh, to the extent that this country, uh, as, as Dan pointed out, I don't think we're going to get shut down again. Um, I think the reality is that this is going to be a, a, a process where we're going to see some rebound. But um, there's, there's no question uh, that this has been seen by some parts of the country as uh, you know, a a political dynamic uh, more heavy handed than it should be. Uh, the reality is this is a health issue, folks, and markets are responding most to the health issue. We're just getting started here on the Fast Money Five. Up next, we're tackling the four other big money stories from this week, including a look into who is really in the driver's seat on Wall Street and the one fast food joint that is slimming down in a big way. Stay with us. We're back right after this. Welcome back to the Fast Five. We're counting down the five big stories of the week. Next up, the Robin Hood rally, the influx of new day traders front and center on Wall Street. But just how much impact are they really having on this market? Listen to what Fast Money friend Jim Bianco said earlier this week on the show. First, you cut commissions to zero. Then you allow the purchase of less than one share. You get millions of accounts opened up, an explosion of trading in the market. And when you talk to them or read the Reddit boards, the word Fed always comes up. If you think the market's going to sell off soon, you have to find something that says it's going to be so powerful to bring the market down that even the Fed's unlimited printing and the Davy Day Trader crowd buying like mad is not going to be able to stop it. Our next guest has new numbers on just how much impact the day traders are having on the market. Rich Repetto follows e-broker trends for Piper Sandler. He joins us on the CNBC Newsline. Rich, it's always great to speak with you. Good evening, Melissa. Good I feel, to speak with you as well. I feel like this is the big question on the street. I mean, do, do the retail investors right now, are they in the market in size enough, big enough, to actually have an impact on where the market is going? What have you found? Uh, certainly the volumes are at, at record levels. Uh, if you look at what they call, they call it the trade reporting facility volumes. Uh, that's volumes that aren't done on exchanges, mostly retail. Uh, those are at a record uh, high as far as a percentage of all volumes. If you look at the actual trades that, say, an Ameritrade does, uh, you know, they're almost three times uh, the amount of last year. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean shares uh, because zero commissions people trade but there's a lot of activity uh, going on in the retail space right now. So there is a lot of activity, but back to the original question, <laughs> are they having an impact, <laughs> do you think, on the overall direction of the markets? I mean, we're trying to get at that. There are a lot of people who, who actually think they do, and there are others who say, you know, the retail guy is never going to be big enough to actually make any difference. I, I still think that they have a limited impact, uh, certainly over time, you know, the, you know, the efficient market theory, uh, I believe, wins out. But I don't 
relatively, you know, they have still a, a, a relatively small percentage of the market. A lot of times, a lot of these volumes are in very speculative, low-price stocks where you see a lot of activity. So, don't be driving Rich, sorry uh, to cut you off. The, the connection is really terrible. We're going to have to let you go. We look forward to speaking to you again. Rich Repetto of Piper Sandler. This is the big question. Tim, you had your doubts. Rich has his doubts. And yet here we are saying it's the Robin Hood rally. Well, look, I, I am of the view that uh, if you look at where a majority uh, of those Robin Hood checks, especially went in the 35 to 70,000 tr- uh, economic bracket, income bracket, um, and you look at the trading frequency on the week before uh, stimulus checks came out in the week after. In fact, CNBC did a nice note on this kind of in, I think it was around mid-May. Uh, the reality is a, a lot of stimulus checks went into the market. Uh, are they moving the market? Well, if you think about the masses and if you think of also just uh, in terms of frequency and timing of liquidity, uh, I do think there are days we could have pushed this around. I think we spent a lot of time this week uh, and over the last three weeks also, though, talking about those companies that had been of particular interest to this Robin Hood crowd. And we've been talking about companies that either are on the verge of bankruptcy, in bankruptcy, uh, our penny stocks are companies that that really are in a momentum vortex of sorts. And there's no question the retail investor is moving those stocks. When you look at the overall market and the overall size of the market and the fact that the, the Nasdaq uh, 100 is, is basically dominated by the four biggest companies in the world, I don't think that retail is necessarily moving them uh, overnight. I, I would also then look at retail trends this week and over the last couple weeks in terms of uh, measuring bullish or bearish sentiment. And it's very interesting that bearish sentiment within the retail community is still significantly higher than it should be when you consider where the market has moved. So the retail investors in, they're supposed to be moving the market, and yet they're measuring uh, not terribly bullish here. Guy? Yeah, I'll jump in here. Uh, Listen, you know, I think that point... I think that point is an interesting one, the last point that Tim made about the the bearishness of the retail investor. I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that, yes, they got these checks, they opened these accounts, they put it in the market, they're following people on social media, and they're having some fun with it, and they're making money. But at the end of the day, a lot of people who are furloughed are getting worried about the fact that they may not have a job when their bonus unemployment money runs out at the end of July, depending upon how this reopening goes. So I think there's probably a level of bearishness about the economy and about their uh, ability to earn wages that are higher than they were, let's say, in the prior six months uh, in the back half of this year. So that could have something to do with the push and pull. And I think the most important point is this. We've been talking about this for a long time. All this cash that's sitting in money market funds, where's it go when it goes into the market? And Tim just said it. It goes into the top four stocks in the NASDAQ and the S&P 500. And those ones are the ones that are just absolutely surging Apple, Microsoft gapped up to new all-time highs today. Now, they reversed lower, but that's where passive money is going to directly. And the rest of the stuff, the trains, planes, and automobiles trains, the, the Robin Hood guys, they're going to keep playing around with those things, but it's going to act as a accelerant to the downside if things eventually turn. And, and Mel, quickly, you know, these checks came after we put in the low probably in March, if you think about it. So for many of these folks, uh, last Thursday notwithstanding, a lot of them never seen the market go down. It only goes up every day. So you get sort of desensitized to the fact that, oh, this is really easy game. Markets just go higher, number one. Number two, as a point that Tim has made, but I think we all agree upon, 
You know, it's one thing to have twelve hundred dollars and it to go to zero. I, you know, it's it's bad, but it's not potentially catastrophic. It's another thing to have, you know, twelve hundred dollars being allowed to leverage or leverage that twelve hundred dollars, and not only lose that, but lose some leverage. multiple of it. And that's, I think, what we saw with this poor individual uh, that took his own life. It's it's a this is not an easy game, despite the fact that people want to see uh, try to make it out to be. And remember. You know, for a lot of these folks, they've only seen the things they own go higher. Uh, the sun also sets, if you get my drift. Yeah, I mean, trading on your phone is so similar to just trading like a video game. I mean, it's almost you almost don't feel like it's real money because you're just pressing a bunch of buttons and trades go through. Um, but the reality is that there is a lot at stake. And Dan, I think, makes a very good point. We were talking about loans being in forbearance or deferment when those periods run up. And the, ch- and the the loan is due, what are you going to do when PPP runs out and businesses actually start to make cuts and you don't have a paycheck waiting for you? What do you do now? You need that stimulus money that's sitting in your Robinhood account, Tim. Yeah, you do. Um, I think we also believe that uh, those those stimulus checks are going to keep coming. They're going to extend those benefits um, if, if we are at 20 million unemployed in this country or at, you know, near 20 percent. Um, but but there's no question um, that it's a, a very difficult time to gauge the health of the consumer. And so taking the Robinhood uh, dynamic and its impact on the market and then just also playing that into how many of those Robinhood traders are also people that are not paying loans? Uh, I don't know, but I bet there's a pretty decent correlation there as well. Uh, and at some level, um, as we've talked about, the people that are not paying loans, if given an opportunity at forbearance or given an opportunity to skip three months of payments, you're going to. And you're going to have more short-term free cash flow from which to play with. That's the scary part about Robinhood. All right. Two big stories down, three more to go. Still ahead, we're talking the Fed, fast food, and a fruit company. The countdown will continue right after this. Welcome back to the special edition of Fast Money. We're counting down our top five stories of the week. Two down, three to go. But let's take a fast break first. Major League Sports have been shut down due to the coronavirus. So who is the first to return? You all know I know nothing about sports, so I'm out of this. Guy, what do you say? Oh, come on. Of course Thank you do. God, by the way. I mean, no, she doesn't know anything. She doesn't, Tim. First of all, sports are back. I mean, British Premier League, don't at me. NASCAR, I watched Days of Thunder last night. I got my cold trickle fix. And somehow people think watching four guys play golf to an empty gallery is something interesting. I don't. But out of the four major ones, it's the National Hockey League, and it should be. Because quite frankly, to me, hockey is the sport of sacrifice. I love it, and I can't wait. Baseball should call up and say, you know what, folks? We can't get our act together. We'll see you next spring. Who knows what happens to football? And basketball seems to be playing at Disney World. Good luck with that. Well, if you think about football, and and for all we know, we could be getting you know replacements again, and you know, guy could be Shane Falco, and and you know, coming in uh, uh, out of his his retirement from that. Sugar Bowl disaster and Keanu. Anyway, all right, bad movie reference. The bottom line here is I have to say if I look at the four major sports out there, um, hockey is the one that has to come back. So if you if you rank them according to the following, the NBA, I think, has the most to lose in terms of momentum. But I think the NBA is is one that probably also in the context of what's been going on with some of the, 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 the social movement in the country right now, I think the NBA uh, wants to stick to a, a solidarity line that's, that's very, very interesting and important. 
Uh, I think if you think about Major League Baseball, it's actually kind of sad. As a guy that would count the, the national pastime as baseball, I think baseball's the one that probably comes in last. But hockey needs to come back for the money. So, so Timmy, I hate to break it to you, buddy. Baseball is going to continue to come in last. That other spring sport, lacrosse, is about to overtake it. The Premier Lacrosse League is back in business July 25th for a two-week championship series. It's going to be on NBC Sports, all 20 games for two weeks. Yeah, you'll get a yard sale, my boy Paul Rabel. So that's the one, lacrosse, <laughs> July 25th. Back. Scintillating conversation, Don't guys. mess with Paul. Coming up, the countdown continues. You know, you know, it's like it's like in the peanuts, the teachers talking. Wah, wah, wah. That, that was that was what that conversation was to me. Up next, things could get a little moody for Jay Powell. We will explain why when Fast Money Five returns. Welcome back to the Fast Five. We are counting down the five big stories of the week. Next up, risky business for the Fed. Jay Powell and company doing something they have never done before. They started buying corporate bonds this week, individual corporate bonds. This comes as the Fed continues to signal it will do whatever it takes to backstop the economy. Um, Tim, you actually said the Fed deserves a downgrade. It deserves to be downgraded. Look, if, if a company, a corporate was out there gorging themselves on debt and, and actually increasing their balance sheet like a drunken sailor, they would be downgraded by S&P and Moody's. Uh, the, the, the testimony this week where it almost seemed as if the corporate buying conversation was, was just kind of thrown in there willy-nilly, and that's the big problem. I don't think that the Fed's approach, first of all, I don't think there's anything in the Fed's mandate, which is supposed to be growth and inflation, um, is, is about buying corporate bonds. We already know that they're nationalizing uh, the high-yield junk bar market. We know they've essentially nationalized government debt. It, it's well, that should be nationalized. But the, the bottom line here is it's a very disturbing trend for a Fed that I think, yeah, if I'm, if I'm a ratings agency, I'm downgrading the Fed right now. You know, it's interesting because Jay Powell, when he was talking about this, said effectively that they're going to proceed with this because of credibility issues. They said that they're going to do this from the get-go, so they're going to do this. Because, I mean, really, Guy, if you take a look at the, the amount, the dollar amount, it's not very much. And yet here we are. Credibility went out the window with uh, Paul Volcker. Uh, I'm old enough to remember Mr. Volcker. So, I mean, you know, if they're worried about their credibility, they should worry about something else, because in my opinion, they don't have any, number one. Number two, I mean, free market capitalism. I love Larry Kudlow. I consider him a friend. I hope he's watching. But even Larry has to be appalled by what's going on. I mean, this is not what it's all about. You have to allow corporate Darwinism to take over. And it's painful, but it's essential because what winds up happening is you carry companies that are not viable, and that hurts everybody else. It's, it, it, it's not, you know, it's, it's, I know it sounds awful, but I got to tell you something. The other side of this is far worse, in Wait, my opinion. Hold on, because and the I, Fed I think absolutely should be downgraded. A lot of people out there will say, hey, you know what? Then that applies to PPP. It, it, it applies to all sorts of programs put in place to build what we're hoping to be a bridge to the other side of this pandemic in order to keep some of the economy going. And so there is a real argument here to be made to say support some of these companies in the economy. Yeah, yeah? I understand that. Look at the look at the numbers. Look at the difference in the numbers between what's going on. Look at, you know, when Steve Mnuchin, you know, pulls sick the six trillion dollars out of his pocket. Where's that coming from? It's coming from me and you. It's it's whittling away our buying power. And by the way, this started long before anybody ever heard of COVID, and it really started in earnest in September, September 17th to be exact. So, you know, what the yep. Fed is doing, you know, they could hide Stealth behind the, the, 
the window or the, or the veil or the or the the carpet of COVID, but there's much more going on, and it's in my opinion, it's a lot worse. All right, old man screams at Sky. We got you, buddy. Um, you don't like the Fed. You know, Mel makes a good point about the bridge to the other side of this thing. The only issue I have with this action this week about the corporate bonds, it's entirely unnecessary. Mel, like, we still have the stimulus coming. We still have the PPP stuff in place. We don't know what it looks like, right, when we come out of this kind of health crisis, hopefully by the fall. You know, I, I guess the real risk that I see is that they're just inflating risk assets right now because every day I see new job cuts that are coming that were going to be coming one way or another because of efficiencies that are being realized for a whole host of reasons. And I want to make one last point because we've been talking about this on Fast Money all week. What do you think the bank stocks are telling you? The bank stocks and the price action there are telling you that we are going to have negative interest rates here soon. I know that doesn't seem like something that a lot of people want to hear or agree with. I know a lot of people much smarter than me on the credit markets think that the next move is higher in rates, but the banks are not telling you that right now. So put it all together. The Fed should take their pedal off the metal a little bit, and we should let the risk assets kind of settle in a little bit because at least the crash is over. Now we have to see about the economic recovery. And I suspect they're going to continue to have to reload on multiple levels as we get in the back half of the year because unemployment is going to stay high, probably double digits for at least the next six months. Yeah, Tim, you don't you don't connect those dots, what the Fed is doing to the performance of the bank. Well, stocks. no, I, I don't. And, and I also want to be clear that, I, you know, there's a very different a, a dynamic going on between what the Treasury is doing and what the Fed's doing. And, and the Fed was there to be fixing the plumbing of the market and actually going after, uh, you know, at least trying to maintain health in money markets, trying to maintain health in asset-backed securities, which are very illiquid, and we were seeing some uh, major drawdowns. But um, I, I think that the banks are naturally going to be in the center of the storm when you've had yield curves, really interest rates move lower. The yield curves actually steepened a bit. Um, I think the fear is, and if you look at banks, uh, from the moment they announced those reserves in the Q1 earnings that were um, extraordinary, they're well in excess of what anybody thought. I think the expectation was that the banks may know something that we do not. Um, I'm not ready to, to, to jump out of the window on banks here. I think you've got a case where we've seen some ferocious bank rallies. Uh, I think banks have at times showed major dislocation from this market and at other times have looked like if you believe that the stock market is supposed to be at 3,100, you believe that bank stocks should probably be 10 percent higher at least. And, and you can't say it any other way than that. All right. Coming up, we will reveal our final two big stories of the week. Stay with us. The special edition of Fast Money is back right after this. Welcome back to the Fast Five. We're counting down the five big stories of the week. Next up, Apple's app store under fire as competition concerns grow. The debate catching fire in the tech world. Listen to what Microsoft President Brad Smith said this week. I do believe the time has come, whether we're talking about Washington, D.C. or Brussels, for a much more focused conversation about the nature of app stores, the rules that are being put in place, the prices and the tolls that are being extracted, and whether there is really a justification in antitrust law for everything that has been created. So is a regulatory crackdown a big threat to Apple, especially as, Dan, the stock sits just about at all-time highs? 
Yeah, I don't think it is this year. We've been talking about this story a little bit. It's been floating around. We know that the EU has really set their sights on mega cap tech um, players in the U.S. in their practices, uh, competitive practices. Over there, there's been some big fines. I suspect there'll still be some big fines. I just don't think uh, any breakups are coming, not in 2020. Is there a risk to it? No doubt about it. Kara Swisher had a really great op-ed in the New York Times, um, I think today, discussing some of the practices. And I think that for you to think that they will not come under scrutiny is a big, big mistake. These companies are, are exercising more and more dominance, but that also means that they have more and more sway, especially here in the U.S., um, dealing with politicians on both sides. So I just don't think that's an imminent risk right now. Not imminent, but could it be a risk? I mean, the, the bull case for Apple has always been the services revenue. And so if this part of the services revenue comes squarely <laughs> under attack and they cannot charge between 15 to 30 percent of subscriptions to the developers, including Microsoft, um, then what happens to that bullish leg of the story, Tim? It's all been about re-rating according services. I don't care what you want to say because uh, Dan's been pointing out for two years what's been going on with iPhone shipments and, and you know, essentially net profitability of Apple during this time where it's re-rated. It's been all about that services multiple, which is anywhere from 24 to 28 times if you ask the street on a blended multiple with the rest of the name. So really interesting story because, you know, Apple's been, uh, you know, a year ago almost to this day, we had Apple and, and Google and, and, and Facebook under the DOJ uh, kind of siren. And, and this week, the DOJ was certainly uh, back in full force as well. Listening to their competitors like Microsoft and talking about uh, the, the rancor within the developers community, that's very real. Uh, and there's no question that, that some of the other, you know, mega cap tech companies uh, would love to see some of Apple's position dethroned here. Getting back to a stock that closed effectively near its highs, because also this week, Apple talked a little bit about, or at least part of the re-rating to all-time highs this week, was last week's new about ARM chips uh, versus x86 and where Apple may be, you know, ultimately putting their own chips inside of laptops and Macs and, and, and becoming, uh, you know, a competitor to a number of the other players in the industry. So a lot going on with Apple, um, almost priced to perfection, but very defensive in this market when valuations are, are, are very difficult. And this is probably the best one of mega cap tech, if you ask me. I can't wait for the S8. 86 chip myself. I mean, yeah. it's like I, I wait for just, the Amazon just, truck every yeah. day to and, come and, by yeah. and drop and the, one off. And the, and the 8G phone you're waiting yeah. for, Guy, and you can't wait till the App Store well, reopens. I mean, it seems, yeah, all of that. Seems to be coming. And you know, I can't wait for the application store. In terms of services, you know, Katie Huberty was the axe in uh, <laughs> Apple from Morgan Stanley. She broke it down with math today in terms of its, it, it, how meaningful it is, and she didn't seem all that worried. So if she's not all that worried about it, why should I be? But what I'll say is this, something I've learned over the last 37 years doing fast money, is that if you say something negative about Apple, uh, even remotely, p p the, the affront, the vitriol, the ats you get on Twitter is astonishing. And I understand the argument you just own the stock and, and live to fight another day. But bear in mind, over the last two years, you had a stock that went from 225, which at the time was an all-time high, to 140 and bounced. And then recently you had a stock... It went from 325, which at the time was an all-time high, and went to 240 and bounced. This stock gives you opportunities on the downside. That's fact. That's not me riffing. That's just the way it is. And my sense is you're going to get another one. 
So, Guy, you're saying trade it and own it, um, which I think makes a lot of sense. I just want to make one point about the services business that people talk about. What a high growth business. In the last quarter, it grew 17% year over year. Now, I get it. It's a massive number. It was $13 billion um, in the quarter, about 20% of the overall. And, and like Tim just mentioned, it's a much higher margin than the uh, hardware. But here's one really important point that people kind of gloss over. They get about $12 billion a year that drops right into their services category from Google for traffic acquisition using that um, search engine for their mobile browser. Um, so to me, that's a huge, huge thing that might go away. Don't forget that Android, which is owned by Google, has more than 80% smartphone market share around the globe. So to me, I, I don't find the services revenue growing that quickly. A 1.5 billion install base for iOS users, and they have 125 million active users. I, I, I don't, I don't see it, and, and I only see margins going lower for their hardware. So to me, yes, I think the stock is fully valued here, but I would have said that at 300 bucks too. Coming up, we're just moments away from revealing our final hot story of the week. Need a hint? One household name just spotted the ultimate golden opportunity. We've got the details when we come right back. Welcome back to the special edition of Fast Money. Today marks an important day for America. It's Juneteenth, the date that marks the end of slavery in 1865. All day long here on CNBC, we're taking a look at what companies are doing to mark this day and the big challenges minorities still face in the workplace. So let's get to Deidre Bosa, who is taking a look at the divide in the gig economy. Deidre. Hey, Melissa. Well, gig economy companies are commemorating the day in different ways, but Uber and Lyft they're actually making Juneteenth an official holiday. A number of gig workers, however, they're commemorating it by raising awareness about the inequality that still exists. A group called Gig Workers Uprising is circulating a petition calling for sick leave, health insurance, workers' comp, and, quote, meaningful representation for black gig workers because the divide really is on display today. Now, rideshare and corporate employees, they have the day off. Drivers, though, they are still classified as independent contractors and they don't get the day off unless they choose to take it off. Um, so take a look at some of these numbers. Ride-sharing uh, numbers at Uber, excuse me, um, there are a number far more black drivers or contractors than there are black employees, particularly at a company like Uber. According to the company's most recent diversity and inclusion report, the proportion of black leadership at the company sits at just 3.3%. Among full-time employees, it's at about 9%. Meanwhile, black Uber drivers, they make up about 18 percent of total drivers, according to another survey. So the petition circulating today from that activist group, it raises the issue of worker classification, a very heated issue already. And it calls on the companies to not just pay lip service to the Black Lives Matter movement, but, quote, if you're committed to black and brown lives, they say prove it. Back to you, Melissa. Yeah, Deidre, thank you. Deidre Bosa. Dan, this is an important issue. Um, states like California have tried to deal with this issue um, to some varying degrees of success. Yeah, you know, it, it's a really interesting issue because there was already some momentum um, on these gig workers um, side. You know, I know that there's obviously huge lobbying efforts against these from these companies because it really does change their business models in a lot of way. But I think the new climate or at least the most recent climate 
in this country is going to lean in the favor of these gig workers. And I think the pandemic really highlighted a lot of inequities that exist, obviously, in our country and who is hit hardest. And when you think about gig, gig workers and really their ability to kind of get some assistance during this time, those are also issues. I'll just make one last point, is that we've also relied on a lot of these delivery services. Obviously, Uber is ancillary to that. But just in the last couple of weeks, Instacart, DoorDash, these guys are raising cash at massive massive numbers. The optics of treating the, the, the workers that you built these businesses on this poorly at this time during a health crisis and an economic crisis aren't great. So I suspect you will see continued momentum in the favor of gig workers. Coming up, we reveal the final hot story of the week and it's sizzling. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Fast Five. We're counting down the five big stories of the week. Our final story. Want fries with that? Well, it depends on what you order. As McDonald's announces, it will keep dozens of items off the menu for the foreseeable future. And this comes in the wake of the coronavirus. The company's seeing new opportunity in simply simplifying its menu. Um, you know, Guy, it's interesting for a chain that started with a single <laughs> offering, the humble hamburger, then to go to all these different variations of it on top of all these other items, like the ones that are discontinued, salads, bagels, yogurt parfaits. This is quite a change. I mean, yogurt parfaits, I got to tell you, look, listen, I know I'm boomering all night long. And, you know, it's getting late for me. I got to go to bed soon, number one. Number two, I yearn for the days when you walked into the McDonald's and you see hamburger, cheeseburger, fries, quarter pounder, Big Mac. That's it, sister. That's all you got to choose from. For somebody like me, it's really easy. I get four cheeseburgers, a quarter pounder, large fry, medium Coke, and I'm set. So good for McDonald's for getting back to their knitting. I think it's fantastic. Simplify. It's like Bruce Springsteen. Whittle, 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 whittle. That said, you have a major double top what? at 219, which I know Dan Nathan is looking at from August of 2019 and February of this year. Buyer beware. Guy got frozen. Um, the McDonald's gods froze for saying that. That's a huge order for a single, a single man, Tim. I don't know what you order, but that sounds just ginormous. Look, I'm, I'm not afraid of a Big Mac. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid of a McDonald's salad. I mean, are you kidding me? There's probably nothing wrong with the salad. But who goes to McDonald's for a salad? Um, and, and frankly, I'll, I'll, I'm not a boomer like Guy, but um, maybe I am. I'm not. Uh, but I'm not going there for a parfait either. I'm going there for an Egg McMuffin. And, and the limited menu, I mean, you, you know, getting Egg McMuffin back on the menu is critical. Uh, look, bottom line here for McDonald's, this has been a five-year re-rating story. This has been a story that obviously coming out of COVID, I think brands that are trusted and that are globally iconic are going to be the ones that do better and take market share. If you look at U.S. Uh, same store sales comps for May, uh, they're coming back, but they're still down 12 percent from down 19.3 for April uh, and international significantly worse. But um, if you want to look at out to 2021, uh, this is a you know, 23, 24 times earnings, which for McDonald's is not expensive and I think will be defensive here. 
You know, it's interesting. This story kind of uh, goes back to a little bit of what we started the show talking about is kind of this rolling reopening or the rolling lockdowns. And I, I think it's a really smart managerial decision. It probably plays well with their franchisees, simplifying their business at a time where there's just a whole heck of a lot of uncertainty. That being said, this is a company that's been doing a lot of takeout. They've been deemed um, essential during the lockdowns. But I think that they probably have a better shot of succeeding in an uncertain um, kind of consumer environment by simplifying that menu. But Tim made a good point. That stock got re-rated by expanding that menu, by expanding breakfast all day, those sorts of things. I think the value menus, all that sort of stuff. More helpful. So they need digital. to keep some sense of variety, um, but I think simplification will work well for them. Guy, you're raising your hand. Yeah, I say horse hockey to variety. I don't need variety. I go to the White Castle, I know what I'm getting, number one. Number two, Dan said something like, old man yells at clouds. I had no idea what he's talking about, but now I'm looking at my Twitter machine, and apparently it's something from The Simpsons, which, by the way, I've never seen either. So he is clearly coming at me in a major way on a Friday night, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm hurt. Just want you to know. That's all you have to say. Well, if they're looking for a new name for the show, Mel, we can just call yeah, it Boomer be TV, because Tim is... Tim is still a little undecided about his boomer stature, but you know, I, I think he's well entrenched with Guy. I'll just be very frank with you. Well, well, look, Dan, I mean, again, this goes back to this could be us on a commercial break where I talk about your hemp ties and, and shirts and whatnot. Dan thinks he's a millennial. Last time I checked, I, I don't laugh track. Love that. Um, last time I checked the chronology here, I don't think you fit into that category either. Look, I'm, I'm happy to wear 54 years old. That's my age. That's what I do. McDonald's has been a part of my life and, and an important part of my life, and it remains so. I thought we were talking about McDonald's, not boomers and millennials. I thought so, too. By the way, you both wear rag and bone, so you're both wearing pretty much, I mean, like you're ragging on him for his hemp ties from the same store. <laughs> Your clothes are from the All same right. store. But back to McDonald's. You know what they're probably going like to do away with? Wrong. All those sort of specialty things around, like shamrock shakes, like all those green things. That's going to be gone. The McRib, oh. which would really be a tragedy in my view to never have a McRib again. Um, you know, things like that. And, and that, those are reasons to go to McDonald's. What guy? What are you going to say? Quickly, because I know we got to go to break. Back in my, when, when I wore, was a Wall Street denizen, we sent, we sent a young man out to get McDonald's for the desk. You figure he's going to come back with like 40 hamburgers, 40 cheeseburgers, and fries, right? I mean, it's pretty simple. He came back with filet fish sandwiches. We fired him on the spot. That's the point. Oh, that's a Whittle problem. it down, that's a Mel. Problem. Whittle it down. Hey, hey, guy, just so you know, Meanwhile, back in, in two bubbles ago, 1999, we had an intern eat 100 Chicken McNuggets in less than an hour, and, and, and he Brilliant. scored. I mean, that guy, yeah, that was a big one. The, the Shamrock Shake certainly is one of the great things ever created by McDonald's. If they lose the Shamrock Shake, they're not only going to lose the Irish, they're going to lose me. Keep it. Shamrock Shake. I think Dan's point about, about the coronavirus, certain changes businesses are making and using this excuse to actually keep them in the future, I think that's going to be the trend for a lot of companies, not just the McDonald's getting rid of shamrock shakes, you know, bagels. I don't know why anybody would go to McDonald's and have a bagel. I mean, especially in New York. That makes no sense whatsoever. Um, and I know you guys as New Yorkers would agree. Um, but, but, you know, to really say these are ways we can save money and we're going to keep them. And you're going to see this way past the pandemic. It's going to stay, Guy. you got to wonder about all these restaurants and all these other stores that had offered so many different things to try and be everything to everybody, saying, you know what, enough of that. 
Yeah. And on a serious note, like, what's the ancillary effect to that? And I think that's something that Dan's been talking about now for weeks. Um, I think behind closed doors, something that nobody wants to admit, I, I, I'm, I'm scared that the, the hiring trajectory isn't going to be what the market wants and obviously what citizens of the United States want. I think these companies have learned to do more with less, and that does not augur particularly well for the employment picture. It, it augurs extraordinarily well for the technology picture. And technology is the most deflationary force in the history of mankind and will continue to be. Yeah, Tim? I, I think companies like McDonald's and Starbucks have done a phenomenal job uh, of actually raising the standard, uh, the working conditions and the pay scale for uh, a lot of minority workers. And essentially uh, those folks that work from whatever demographic they're from. And I think that is part of the allegiance you see to these brands. I think it reflects in the multiple for these companies that have re-rated over the last five years. Good for them. It will continue. Thanks, Guy, Tim, and Dan. Good to hang out with you in the 6 o'clock hour, special hour fast. Stick around. A CNBC special report, Crisis in America, starts right now. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com.